Today is December 9th, 2020. The UK begins rolling out the first wave of COVID vaccines. Trump plans to veto a defense security bill. And Santa made a boy cry by asking for a Nerf gun. Welcome back, Split the Difference friends and Split the Difference family to another fantastic episode that we got rolling out for you right here on this beautiful Wednesday morning. Thank you for joining us. And guys, I'm serious when I say this is it. You guys already know it's the best one that we've done so far. And we've been working hard to make sure that this is going to be great and that you guys are going to enjoy it. We got all the good stuff from the left and the right. And we got all the bad stuff from the left and the right too. If you are new and this is the first time that you're listening in, welcome. We are so glad to have you. A little bit about what we do. So our goal on this podcast is to look at both sides of the aisle, acknowledge the good and the bad, and do our best to try and find a middle ground where it's necessary. We always want to do our best to have opinions that are well-educated and be able to have open conversation and dialogue that hopefully is useful to expanding our own horizons and helping the political landscape as a whole. We're going to always do our best, and our mantra here is to always keep a level head, always be reasonable, and of course, always split the difference. So if that's something that you're interested in, or if this is something that you've been along the ride for for a long time, then welcome as we hop on into our first story of the day, story number one. So for our first story, the United Kingdom went ahead and rolled out the first wave of COVID vaccines. So less than a week ago, Britain granted emergency use of COVID vaccine that was made by Pfizer and Germany's BioNTech. Uh, the vaccine is administered in two doses. So far, it's shown an over 90%, I think even up to around a 95% efficacy rate, meaning that uh, you are actually able to become inoculated from the coronavirus if you take the vaccine, both of the doses. All of that is very good news. It is absolutely wild because this is being rolled out here less than a year since it started to really just kind of sweep across the entirety of the developed world. Uh, currently, it is being reviewed in the United States, and it's slated to be done and approved here, hopefully within the next week or so. Uh, they haven't given any type of official timeline, right? But everybody's thinking right now it's in the trials with the FDA. The FDA in the United States is working to approve it, and hopefully it'll be starting to get rolled out here in the next week to maximum maybe two weeks. The United Kingdom was the first developed country, first world country to actually roll it out. And uh, it's being administered all across the United Kingdom now and within the next couple of weeks. So let's hop on in real quick to a story done by CNBC uh, talking through uh, this actually, you know, pretty landmark achievement here. Welcome back to Squawk Box. Today has been dubbed V-Day in the UK as the first doses of the Corona vaccine are being injected into patients. And I want to get right over across the pond to London uh, where Julianne Schadelbaum is uh, there with that story. Good morning. Good morning, Andrew. Well, it is indeed a historic day here in the United Kingdom. The country's mass national vaccination program has officially begun. And to put this into context, this comes less than a year after the first case of COVID-19 was diagnosed. The chief of a national health service for England called it a remarkable achievement. This morning, the first patient to receive the vaccine outside of those clinical trials was a 90-year-old British woman, Margaret Keenan. She was the first in line 
to receive one of two jabs. She will have to return 21 days from now to receive the second dose of the vaccine. She's also part of the first group of people who will be offered the vaccine, and that consists of those who are over 80 years old, frontline health care workers, and care home workers. All right, so um, it's being admitted, administered by and paid for by Britain's nationalized healthcare service, the NHS. Um, at this point, it looks like they're going to try and get it administered um, basically and out to the entire country in a very similar fashion to how they actually do the flu vaccines as well. Um, though this time, it's going to be a little bit different in the sense that they're going to purposefully and strategically get it to people that are much older and people that are the frontline workers first. So basically how they're going to do it, they're going to go out and they're going to roll it out into nursing homes and they're going to roll it out to specifically people that are 80 and above first. Once they kind of knock that wave out as or that age group out as much as possible, they're going to move to 75 then from 75 to 70, all the way on down the list. The idea being, and as many of you know, coronavirus is much more deadly and much more difficult to deal with for the elderly and people that have, uh, you know, certain propensities to, you know, succumb to difficult viruses due to other complications or other problems that they have. So, um, Many uh, are looking at how the United Kingdom is handling this and what they're doing as almost kind of like a template or a little bit of a blueprint for how they want to roll this virus and this or this vaccine out for this virus here over the coming months. They're pretty much all the eyes of the world are on them right now, especially because they do have a nationalized healthcare system, which I'll get into a little bit later. Uh, but that's the same and it's consistent across the vast majority of Europe as well. So a lot of how Britain is actually rolling this out through uh, the various channels in which they're using the supply chain, uh, how they're getting the vaccine to the places that it needs to be going, how they're actually verifying and vetting and getting the people in the door that need the vaccine the most. Uh, all of that is being looked at. And it's being looked at by the United States as well. Um, we obviously have a pretty robust vaccination uh, supply chain and uh, you know healthcare system here in the United States as well. So we're going to be looking at how they do it and hopefully look at some different mistakes that they've made and try to learn lessons from that and apply that when we roll our vaccine out here over the next couple of weeks. So the thing that's helping the United States or the United Kingdom is that their citizens are actually much less averse to taking the vaccine than Americans are. Um, in a recent survey that was done over the entirety of Brits, 79% said that they would take the vaccine if or when it was available, whereas only 64% of Americans said that they would do the same. Um, I think a lot of this, this is for a lot of different reasons. Uh, number one being the amount of, the incredible amount of misinformation that's just running rampant across America uh, through social media and through different news agencies that are painting the picture that the vaccine uh, is being done by and for incredibly nefarious reasons. Um, you're seeing that, I mean, I've, if you've been on Facebook at all, or if you've talked to any friends and families that are especially much more right-leaning, right much more conservative, you have probably heard some pretty crazy conspiracies. I've heard everything from, this is the first step in creating a one-world government that will force everyone to take a vaccine and that will put a microchip into your bloodstream. I've actually heard that one. I have also heard... Um, it actually won't cure the coronavirus, that they aren't looking to cure, cure the coronavirus, but they are instead uh, doing their best to be able to actually change your RNA in order to be able to make you more susceptible to future viruses in the future. So that way that you could, you know, I guess 
the American people would be more willing to have lockdowns and stuff because people would be sick more easily or make more money in the pharmaceutical. I don't know. I've heard some crazy conspiracy theories out there. But all of that is fueling this idea that the coronavirus isn't very deadly. The coronavirus isn't necessarily real. It's all a hoax. This is just the government trying to get all of your data and all of your information. Whole bunch of stuff. All of it circulating around on Facebook and Parler and a bunch of other crazy social media sites. So the thing that uh, is most interesting, we actually talked about this a little bit a while ago, um, is it's proving very difficult for the United Kingdom through their supply chains to actually get the vaccine out and to the people that need the vaccine. So if you remember back a couple of weeks ago, I talked about the vaccine when Pfizer and Moderna were kind of coming out with the vaccine. They were getting it approved. It was in the initial stages of testing. And one of the biggest holdbacks on it is that it has to be stored and transported in incredibly low temperatures. So everything that I've seen has said that it has to be transported in negative uh, 70 degrees Celsius or so, uh, which is going to be around negative 90 Fahrenheit. So very, very cold. So it, it would actually have to be packaged in and around dry ice, kept completely cold the entire time, all the way up until it gets to the general practitioner's office or the hospital or wherever it is that they're going to be administering the vaccine, where they would then take it out warm it up through basically just letting it come up to room temperature as much as possible. Uh, and then from that point, it has to be stored at a very, very cold level as well. It can't be in any warm, like it can't be held at room temperature for a long time. And then at that point, they are allowed to be able to administer it, but it has to be within like one to three or one to five days, according to Pfizer. Um, but at once it's been kind of like warmed up, you know, when it's uh, come out of that frozen state after being in the dry ice for so long. So that is incredibly difficult to do. Uh, it's incredibly difficult on supply chains. It's difficult at the manufacturing plant where they ha obviously have to be able to have a certain level of quality assurance to make sure that the vaccines themselves um, are actually being packaged correctly, that they're getting administered correctly. And you also have to think it is also coming in two doses. So you almost have to, you have to distribute twice the amount of vaccines that you otherwise would, right? When you go and get a flu shot, you just get one shot in your arm and then you're done and you move on. Well, with this, you have to get two. So you get your first one and then I believe it's 21 days or three weeks later, you have to come back and get your second dose of the COVID-19 vaccine. Well, this means that for right now, for example, in the UK, they've currently ordered 40 million doses from Pfizer and BioNTech in Germany. And uh, that's only enough, though, to inoculate 20 million people. Um, so the supply chains are going to be very, very strained in and all throughout Europe and, of course, into the United States as well. The vast majority of the manufacturing, I believe, is also being done in Europe. So getting those vaccines to the United States in mass in that incredibly controlled environment is going to be extremely difficult. It's not something that can't be done. It just may not be as easy as we would otherwise hope. So the only advantage I think that the United Kingdom has and some other developed countries have um, that have more socialized healthcare is that they actually kind of already have a lot of these supply chains already in there and instated for healthcare which is very, very beneficial. Now, this isn't necessarily an argument for socialized healthcare, okay? I'm not saying that. I'm just saying it's going to be a little bit more difficult for the United States to be able to distribute this in mass in a much more coordinated effort because those supply chains by the government, yes, they're there, but it is being purchased by 
and distributed by the government. So they're going to have to be working alongside private corporations and private doctor's offices in the United States, whereas in the UK, all of their general practitioners are paid for by the government. And all of those supply lines, all of the payment, all of those invoicing, all of the small, tiny little intricacies that would come in and throughout the entirety of the supply chain are already there. So uh, that's actually a little bit of benefit for the United Kingdom uh, and hopefully will help them to inoculate the entirety of their population much, much earlier. So hopefully this will mean inoculation will happen quickly. It'll at least start, right? We know that it's at least starting. The first couple people have gotten it uh, as of Tuesday. Uh, and, you know, we will hopefully start to see the coronavirus start to take a tick back and maybe not continue to explode all the way across Europe and the United States the way that it has been over the past couple months. It has definitely taken on an entirely new level of uh, expansion. I mean, it's pretty much growing at an exponential rate at this point. So hopefully this will mean that this will kind of start to dial back and we'll be able to start to see things start to go back to normal, hopefully here within the next six to maybe eight or nine months. But that's yet to be seen. We'll have to see how many people in the United States actually are willing to go out and get the vaccine in order for things to change here. So with all of that having been said, let's move on in to our second story of the day, story number two. So for our second story, Trump plans to veto a defense bill. This has been taking a whole, he's been taking a whole bunch of heat from the media and actually a lot of heat from both sides of the aisle. So for, I believe that the defense bill uh, every year has pa been passed every single year with bipartisan support for something like 58 or 59 years running. Uh, and the defense bill hasn't basically gone to a place where it was unable to be passed in that almost 60 years, which is pretty incredible. That's, I mean... Honestly, good. Not a lot of places where you see a lot of tons of bipartisan support. So uh, the NDAA, or the National Defense Authorization Act, is currently a $740.5 billion bill. Uh, it passed the Senate with an overwhelming bipartisan support of 86 to 14. Uh, it passed the House at a 295 to 125. So it's pretty clear that both Republicans and Democrats both like this bill. They want this bill to be passed. It always is passed towards the end of the year. And now we're running up um, on a couple of things, that, and I'll talk about in a bit, but that are coming to expire. So they kind of need to get this bill passed um, as soon as possible. So um, Trump has said that he doesn't like it for a few reasons. And so we're going to go ahead and talk through a couple of these reasons. The first is that he wants to get rid of a provision that will rename military installations, monuments, and paraphernalia that are honoring Confederate commanders. So one of the, one of a small provision within this NDAA is that uh, they're going to go through and start methodically taking off the names of various things that are, you know, government owned or public buildings that have uh, Confederate names attached to it. Great example would be like here in South Carolina, we've got a ton of stuff that's named after Wade Hampton, right? Wade Hampton was a con Civil War Confederate war general. Uh, he was a governor of South Carolina as well. I actually talked about him a decent bit a couple of podcasts before. Um, I believe the name of the podcast is Taking It Back to 1876. I talked about the split in the South Carolina government. Wade Hampton was one of the governors that did that. He was incredibly racist, pretty awful guy. So uh, they went, Republicans and Democrats, both bipartisan support going through and taking and removing a lot of those Confederate commanders' names off of public buildings and stuff. Trump doesn't want that to happen. The second is he wants to include language that takes out or severely 
I guess, limits or corrects Section 230 of the 1996 Communications Decency Act. Uh, this specific section, I talked about this a couple weeks ago as well, uh, grants social media companies broad immunity for the context uh, uh, with which they publish and uh, like users can publish on their site. So it basically is the provision within that act that has allowed social media companies to stay out of legal trouble for the past 25 years. Um, pretty big, pretty big stuff, I guess, especially in the tech sector. And that gets removed. A lot of social media companies are then going to start being held liable for what their users actually post. Uh, the third thing, I guess maybe third and fourth thing, this one's a little bit more confusing. It's just in a tweet that he put out. Uh, he tweeted that the bill must quote, allow for five 5G and troop reductions in foreign lands. He also spelled troop wrong. He spelled it T-R-O-U-P-E instead of T-R-O-O-P. That is our president. So um, anything. So anyway, the first one. Uh, we're going to talk about, I guess, a little bit. The first thing that he has is against renaming Confederate monuments and renaming different, uh, you know, buildings or different things that are renamed around or that are named about around or after Confederate war generals or Confederate commanders. So I'm just going to throw out there. If you are a Trump supporter and you don't understand how Trump could possibly be received as a racist over and over again, and you just don't understand how the Democrats over and over again keep saying that Trump is a racist and why he doesn't get overwhelming support from the black Americans, even though he did, in a lot of ways, lower the unemployment for the black and Latino communities, minority com communities. Uh, Trump, I, you know, his economic plan in some ways, you know, could definitely be argued helped uh, the very low income individuals, a lot of which were minority communities. But you just can't understand why so many people say that Trump is racist. Well, here is a fantastic example of why. So I can see the sentiment of, and I can understand the argument behind the vast majority of the conservative talking points. I really can. In fact, a, a, there are a lot of things that are on the conservative side of the aisle that I agree with and that I line up with politically. This is not one that I have been able to wrap my head around. I just don't get it. I don't understand it at all. At this point, I don't see why it is a big deal that people are pushing to have things renamed after people that actively discriminated against and actively pushed the utter subjugation of the entirety of a people group within our country's history. I don't understand it. it to me, it seems like such an easy answer to be like, why just put it in a museum. If you've got a plaque on a wall for Wade Hampton, just put it in a museum. That's okay. If you have a Confederate flag, Okay, don't fly it at the state house, South Carolina, who just took theirs down like well, like five or eight years ago. Put it in a museum, South Carolina State Museum. You can go and you can look at it. You can talk about the history. You can talk about how different the South was then. You can talk about how uh, pushing through all that subjugation and segregation and all the Jim Crow laws. You can talk about how you know that was a thing of our past, but we are now stronger because we have realized the error of our ways. You can, all of that, right? You can do all of it. It doesn't need to be on the building. I don't understand it. And so for me, you have people like Wade Hampton that actively oversaw lynchings, that actively participated in cross-burning ceremonies, that was an active member of the Red Shirts, of, of, you know, that supported actively the KKK. And you are saying that it's okay 
for his name to be on the state house or to be on various buildings on the state grounds or to be on various buildings within the University of South Carolina, right? Or to have schools named after him, streets named after him. Every single time that a black person walks by a building that is a federal building or a state building that has the name of some Confederate commander on it, it is a small reminder to them that they are living in a country that at one point, if they were born 150 years ago, they would not have any rights at all. They would literally be owned by another human being. This is where the coin systemic racism or the coined term systemic racism comes into play. If you're wondering why or how any group of people could still think that the United States is systemically racist, this is a fantastic example of why. There are actually institutions currently that are named after people that owned slaves and fought for people's right to own slaves. When Trump, as the United States president, comes out and says that he wants to keep those there and that he wants to veto a bill that would take those things off, with, which at this point has I mean, wide bipartisan support, it makes him look incredibly racist. Plain and simple. Like, no other way around it. It just makes him look super racist. I'm not going to sit here and say that Donald Trump, you know, is an active white supremacist and that Donald Trump wants the active subjugation of black people. But when you hear that Donald Trump is angry about buildings being renamed because they're named after people that own slaves and, you know, subjugated, actively fought and subjugated black people definitely makes him look questionable. So Anyways, second point, section 230 and protections for the social media countries. On this point, I actually really see where Donald Trump is coming from. So it's time, definitely time to start holding a lot of these gigantic tech companies accountable. They are pretty much running rampant, doing whatever it is that they want to do uh, with the entirety of our data, with all of our information. They are, you know, they control the entirety of what is said on their platform, but they're not held accountable to it at all. But I don't think that it needs to just be thrown into a defense bill, pass, you know, pass haphazardly trying to get it pushed through as fast as they possibly can, uh, pass through the legislature. This is something that our legislature, both the con both both houses, both houses of Congress, whether it's the Senate or whether it's the House of Representatives, they both need to sit down. And there needs to be a bipartisan look at a solution for what is happening right now in the tech industry and specifically the social media industry. This is not something where we need to just go through and say, all right, well, it'll fix everything if we just strike one provision out of a bill that was set in place 25 years ago. That's not how this, this problem is going to be solved. We're going to need people that are educated coming in and testifying on Capitol Hill. There's going to need to be lots of research done. There's going to need to be thorough investigation into how all of these social media com companies actually run what they do, what the feasibility is of holding them accountable for all of the rampant stuff that's put on their platforms, and then create a bill that is specifically designed for this, right? We don't need to just throw it into a defense bill. So I agree with the sentiment that Trump has that, that Section 230 uh, of that act absolutely needs to be talked about, absolutely something that needs to be considered. Do we need to tack it onto a defense bill to just try and get something done? No. I don't think that's, I don't think that's the way to go, around about, go, go about it. If you don't do it, don't do it halfway go ahead and just sit down and do the entire thing, pass another act. So for the other stuff, the 5G towers, I have absolutely no idea what he's talking about. I'll be 100% honest with you. Pretty sure nobody does. I tried to look up like two or three articles. All of them were just total speculation. 
I don't know if he's saying there needs to be more 5G towers or they need to get rid of the 5G towers or something. I don't I don't know. I have no idea what he's talking about. For the troop withdrawal, um, spelled troop, T-R-O-O-P, that's how you spell troop, um, he doesn't want the bipartisan support against him pulling troops out of Iraq and Afghanistan. So uh, Donald Trump about a month ago, maybe month, month and a half ago, maybe not even that long ago, um, uh, signed an executive order basically saying that he's going to start withdrawing troops and significantly draw down our presence in a couple of Middle East countries, Middle Eastern countries. This is something that he said that he wanted to do before even running for presidency. As he was running for presidency, it's something that a lot of his followers really wanted to see him do. Um, but he can't actually do that unless, you know, Congress passes and says that he's allowed to have the money to do it. Okay. Congress controls the power of the purse. So the president can say, I'm going to sign an executive order withdrawing troops from Afghanistan, but he's not going to have the funds to actually do it unless Congress says, okay, here's the funds to actually do it. Well, uh, the, in the national defense or in the NDAA, uh, basically what they're doing is they're like, no, no, we're not going to give you money to do this unless there's more research done, unless you're able to prove that things on the ground are actually done and we can wrap it things up and we can go ahead and pull troops out of Afghanistan and whatnot. So um, what's going to end up happening is uh, if Donald Trump vetoes it, uh, a couple things can kind of go down. So um, right now it's pretty clear that there's pretty overwhelming bipartisan support for this. So in order to be able to, uh, if Trump decides to veto it, there could be uh, both both the House and the Senate could go through and basically reject his veto and pass it anyway. Uh, they would need, uh, I believe, uh, two-thirds or three-fourths uh, of the people voting to actually vote in order to get that uh, the veto overturned. Um, it would be a pretty resounding slap in the face uh, to Donald Trump and would you know indicate that the vast majority of these politicians are pretty tired of Trump and all of his antics. Um, they would also have to re—basically what would happen, they would re-vote on it if they did— uh, overturn his veto, then it would get passed. If they didn't revote on it, or if uh, you know his, if they're not able to get the enough votes to be able to overturn his veto, then you know they're going to have to resettle, recome back to come back to the table, and you know get something else done in order to be able to get Trump's approval on it. Um, so if they don't have that, and you know they don't have Trump's support, they're not able to overturn the veto, then uh, a lot of these defense programs are going to set to expire on January 1st. This is, includes about $8.5 billion for military construction, about $70 million for local schools that are educating military children, special pay bonuses and hazard pay for military members deployed across dangerous areas, and full pay for Defense Department civilian employees. So a lot of people that are working for the Defense Department um, after January 1st would actually lose funding for their paychecks to be paid and they would be unemployed for a while until they actually got the defense bill passed. Um, if nothing gets passed by January 3rd, uh, the current session of Congress ends, the new session starts, and they would actually have to start from scratch on the bill because everything dies uh, going into the new session of Congress. So, None of that would be good. Donald Trump, obviously, I mean, if, if there's bipartisan support for it, I understand, you know, it's within the president's right and authority to be able to do that and veto a bill if he wants, but just it's just Trump being Trump at this point. So with all of that having been said, let's move on in to our story number three. So for our third story of the day, uh, it's a video about a boy crying because Santa told him that he could not have a Nerf gun. I'm serious, that actually happened. Let's hop in and take a look at the video right now. What do you want for Christmas? Uh, you can use something. 
If you aren't watching and you don't know what's going on, or if you're just listening and you're having trouble hearing what's going on, this is the premise of what happened. So, a mall Santa in Norwich, Illinois, is sitting there when a little boy walks up, sitting across from a table from him because they're not allowed to sit on his lap because of COVID. Uh, starts, Santa starts with asking him, what do you want for Christmas? Pretty standard. The boy's really shy, doesn't really say anything at first, doesn't really know what to do. And uh, Santa begins to prod him a little bit, and he says, you don't know? And the boy then looks up, and he's like, well, I want a Nerf gun. Trump, or or I guess (laughs) Trump. So the boy says he wants a Nerf gun, if you don't know what a Nerf gun is. So a Nerf gun is basically a little plastic toy that shoots tiny little foam darts. Uh, We used to play with them as kids, my brother and I, all the time. In fact, if you went over to my mom's house, I would not be surprised if you were able to find a Nerf bullet somewhere in her house. Because we played with those things for years. (laughs) They're so much fun. So... Santa then proceeds to tell this little boy, no, nope, no guns. The mom then says a Nerf gun, like talking to Santa saying, no, no, like a Nerf gun, like not a real gun. And Santa says, oh, no, not even a Nerf gun. Okay. Santa then tells the little kid that uh, his dad can get him for him if he wants to, but he's not going to get it for him. And he's like, what else do you want? Now, I normally don't have a ton of opinions around and honestly don't really care about the vast majority of like kind of these dumb little cultural videos and all this stuff that floats around. Most of the time, I think this stuff is pretty much just kind of like going to work itself out. Like everybody's entitled to their own opinions. And if they don't like guns or if they don't like uh, certain things within culture, like whatever, that's not a big deal to me. I have my opinions and they have theirs and that's okay. Parents are free to raise their kids however they want. And most cultural stuff is just honestly wading into waters that and arguing about stuff that is just not worth arguing about. However, this caught my attention. The fact that this dude, this Santa, purposefully felt the need to ruin this little kid's day just because he obviously is opposed to guns is so ridiculous that it actually makes my head hurt. This guy is so uneducated about guns that he legitimately believes that giving a kid a small Nerf gun that shoots little foam projectiles is going to cause problems. And the, so the gun debate is absolutely an important debate that needs to be had. I think that's great. There needs to be conversation around it. They're incredibly intelligent, well-educated, and sound reasoning on both sides of the aisle about whether or not guns should be restricted, about what exactly the Second Amendment says, what the language of that means in today's climate. And that's, if you don't like, if you don't like guns, if you don't like the Second Amendment, totally fine. I get it. That's an opinion that you can have. Nothing wrong with that at all. But taking that to the level of telling a kid as Santa, this kid believes that this is Santa that he's talking to, right? Magical man that brings presents to little kids all around the world. 
that he nerf guns are bad that he can't have a nerf gun because they're bad and that the kid obviously as a result it shouldn't even be asking for it um it's just a whole new level of stupid that just hurts my brain so the last thing that needs to happen in my opinion is there for there to be more misinformation about firearms and about guns in the United States. This is a debate that's been roaring, especially over the past 20 years with the increased number of school shootings, with uh, how much that has been publicized and how much media companies just absolutely just run rampant talking about all this. But there's so much misinformation around all of it. Personally, if you can't tell, I am a supporter of the Second Amendment wholeheartedly. I think that it is something that has been there since the founding, and it was put there very, very purposefully by the founding fathers for a multitude of reasons. But, um, like I said, well, it's one of those things I line up a bit more conservatively about. A very large part of why I have the opinions that I do is because I grew up in a family that did not necessarily shy away from the education about firearms and understanding the safety of fire in being around firearms. Okay. I was very fortunate to grow up in a family where even at a young age, I had uncle, I had an uncle that would take us hunting cared very much about and instilling within my brother and I the importance of firearm safety and understanding, uh, how they can be so dangerous, but also not, you know, pushing us to be incredibly fearful of firearms at the same time. Recreational use of firearms uh, and hunting is something that's, you know, fun, something that's beneficial. It can, you know, build camaraderie amongst people and amongst family, friends, all of that. All of that is good stuff. But to me, even if you don't like firearms and you disagree with having one, that's okay. The last thing that we need is a lack of education about this subject as a whole. And when you have a mall Santa sitting there telling a little boy that he can't have a Nerf gun because guns are bad, that is just furtherly, further perpetuating this idea of and this fearfulness of guns from people all across the country. That, that Santa has absolutely no idea who these kids' parents are. They could be, you know, they could agree with him in a lot of ways around, you know, not wanting to own a, a firearm in the house or being against a lot of what's going on with the Second Amendment. That's okay. But the fact that this mall Santa <laughs> felt the need to go out of his way to make a little kid cry because he's uneducated opinion as a mall Santa <laughs> needed to, to insist upon making a political point. Like that is absolutely ridiculous. Let the kid have a Nerf gun. Let him run around and have fun and shoot his little gun around with his little foam darts. It's not hurting anybody. It's not doing anything. It's not going to make him grow up into a serial killer. It's absolutely outrageous. So if you want to have the gun debate, that's great. That's a good thing. It's stuff that needs to be had. There's good opinions on both sides of the aisle with it. But if you're going to sit down and say that a six-year-old or a seven-year-old owning a Nerf gun is perpetuating violence in our culture, get out of here. That's absolutely ridiculous. So anyways, rant done. That's the show for today. Let's go ahead and hop on into our last segment, something that made me smile. So something that made me smile today was actually a TED Talk that I watched uh, within the past couple of days. It lines up, I guess, well, not totally, but somewhat along the lines of uh, the previous, my third story, and it, the name of it is called The Boy Crisis, A Sobering Look at the State of Our Boys. It's by Warren Farrell, a PhD, incredibly intelligent guy, and he basically sits down and talks through a lot of the research that he's done around the current state, world state of our boys, our young men. 
very, very, very interesting. And there's honestly a lot of statistics in there that um, are really are, like the title says, very sobering. There's a, a lot of incredible information. I thought it was extremely interesting. The oratory delivery by um by warren farrell is not the best it can get a little boring at some points but it's only 12 to 13 minutes i would strongly suggest going and taking a look at it and just kind of thinking about it a little bit um thinking about you know a different place of advocacy that you honestly don't really hear a ton about so i will link that video uh in the show notes so you can go down and actually on our youtube videos or uh within within the podcast platform, whatever podcast platform that you're listening on so that you can actually click on it and take a look at it yourself. Um, I think it's really, really interesting. And I think it's something that y'all may enjoy listening to as well. So with all that having been said, that is the show. Thank you for listening in. We had a great time putting this one together. Always remember to please find me on all the different social medias, whether that's Instagram at split the difference podcast, Facebook at split the difference I'm on YouTube at Split the Difference, and I also have a website at splittheDifference.com. Check me out there. Give me all the best likes and subscribes and, you know, upvotes, anything and everything that you can find. Give me a little bit more push out into the open. It would be great. All that stuff helps out a ton. So thanks so much for joining in with us today. Remember, as always, guys, we're going to do our best to keep a level head, to be reasonable, and to always split the difference. This is Austin Taylor.